0: Why do you name your cameras? Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a pretty good question. Um, I, I, part, of, part of it has to do with just simply keeping them separate, keeping them different, um, you know, so I can refer to them. But I also, uh, you know, I have, okay, so there's a the great philosophy of um, how do you know that there are unicorns in the world? Well, because we have a word for unicorn. If you don't have a word for it, it doesn't exist. So, um, I kind of, and I, I, have, I have to say that just because you have a word for it doesn't mean it exists. Oh, that's either. right. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> but, um,
1: but you're trying to make sure that your cameras exist. So you, you're giving them a name.
0: Well, yeah. That's, I mean, I, I have, uh, okay. So, uh, let's go back. My, my training is in graphic design, web design, branding. You know, I'm, Graphic design and web design is a subset of marketing. Another subset of marketing is branding. Part of branding is making a, you know, a logo mark and stuff like that. So it's all part of, all part of my psyche. It's all part of the way I view any endeavor. Um, you know, I've a,
1: I think you could argue that everything anybody ever makes has some of those qualities
0: sure absolutely absolutely but i i branding to me is something that is very important and um you know i'll i'll see i'll see the world through the branding uh lens quite a bit you know um if you think of uh every mcdonald's employee is a part of their brand so if you walk into a mcdonald's and you know you're you're eating your hamburger and you know, some some of the employees are off in the corner, uh, you know, goofing off. That's part of the brand. So now, is it part of the brand that McDonald's wants to to know? Uh eh, no, probably not. But um, uh, you know, uh, it, to to make a long story short, yeah, it's part of the part of the branding. It's part of what I like about the creation of of something and i have not named all of my cameras but i have given a lot of them numbers like i'm looking at a box it's a cardboard uh paperboard box that i'm sure i picked up at michael's or or some such hobby lobby one or the other that is ph4 it's pinhole number four Um, and the reason for that is when I scan my film, I give it these bits of information, what the camera is, what the lens is, what the film is, and what the developer is. And I put that in the scan of every one of those images, and then it gets a serial number.
1: So it's a Um, unique, it's a unique label that you're using to communicate both to other people and to your future self.
0: Sure. Absolutely. It's probably more for me than it is to anybody else, because I often wipe those things out and give the photographs names um, or titles or, um, you know, so I wipe out that information I, on an and on occasion. I'll forget to do the titling, um, you know, like when I'm po- posting on Flickr, I'll forget to do the title and it'll just come up. PH4. Oh, you know it'll say uf1 that's ultrafine 100 uh plus x plus is the is for the um the developer so plus x is x stall and then it'll have a four digit that's number.
1: confusing because it's also a type of film
0: right you're absolutely right yeah but i never shoot plus X i actually have a little bit <laughs> but we don't have it anymore right and it didn't the the i i have a little bit of it but then i use the word plus you know plus right uh so uh but i do I'll, i will put it this way if i'm if it's uh kodak double x you know the 5222 i will uh i will abbreviate that xx and if it's tri x i'll do it XXX. x
1: you need to make a guide like you know, a key or something for, office. Oh, you, you, you just ask me. <laughs> it's plain as day. <clears throat>
0: and then, uh, um, uh, I was just last week bidding on some, uh, motion picture film, which was Kodak 4X film. Did you know they made a 4X film? No. Yeah. So, uh, I didn't win it. Um, so it went way more than what I wanted to pay, but that's, that's why I give names. So, um, you know, every camera out there has a name, uh, of some sort. Um, and they're most often numbered. They're serialed. Um, there's
1: a, there's a whole subculture of people who talk about these names. And the, the one that is sort of the butt of the most humor is Sice because they used to make these really elaborate names that were completely inconsistent. Like they didn't, their naming system didn't really tell you much you know, everything was an Ico wasn't, was icon. It always was an icon, but it was also Zeiss. And they just had all these naming conventions that were really inconsistent. Anyway.
0: Well, that's, that's like the, the, uh, the Leica, the Leica, um, M series, its core product was the M three, but then they came out with the M two, which was the M three light. And it was, <laughs> it was, and it's actually, uh, for a lot of people, it's a, considered a a better camera but um it just i mean it it didn't have an automatic zeroing uh film counter you know (laughs) and and so anyway um so so, yeah i
1: just i just found the equivalent of that from the best of the minoltas which is that i haven't found an xd5 the xd xd7 was the top of the line at the very peak of their all manual camera period they're basically a Leica SLR.
0: Right, they are. Yeah, they, 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 were, they, they were did building, a lot of work yeah. together. Anyway,
1: but the XD5 is the cheap version of the XD7 and they took off like really minor stuff that doesn't matter, like a thing for covering up the eyepiece for during a long exposure, you know, which, which you can use, you know, uh, your hat or a piece of tape to do. And, uh, And just so that they could have a cheaper model, but they actually didn't want to spend the money to have a separate assembly line
0: and a separate bunch of
1: dies, You know, so it's actually pretty much the same.
0: So um, is there something you don't like about the 63 and the 67? I have two 67s right now, right? I have the 67PH, which is the 67 pinhole. And then I have the 67 Woody.
1: No, those two numbers have to be in the name. and, And they commonly are. I mean, regular... Uh, you know, real camera builders <laughs> like Mamiya and stuff. <laughs> uh, sure, use the, the same convention. the RZ. Yeah, and right. I think that's great because it tells you a huge amount about the camera without even having to look at it. But it's not enough. You can't just call it a sixty-seven. You have to call it a you know a sixty-seven something or other to make it
0: yours. Um, Are you trying to tell me that the sixty-three needs more of a name?
1: Well, yeah, you could call it the Graham sixty-three, or you could think of something else. Oh.
0: Oh no, it's the Frozen Photon Camera Company 63.
1: Oh yeah, but I can't use a PH, right? F R O I can't misspell words. How, how do Oh, okay.
0: F-P. The FP63. So, we could do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to say. Right, exactly. <laughs> and and get it out right, but um but you know, uh, uh, yeah, so do you think it should have a different name? No. Okay. Because uh, I'm about to name it Bob. <laughs> Bob's good. Bob's a good name.
1: Yeah, if it was waterproof.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly, and it would do that in water. But I have a feeling it, we should call it sink instead. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So this is this has gone on way too long. Let's uh, let's start the trouble, trouble with the general camera. question. Oh yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> let's start the homemade camera podcast.
1: So listen, listen, Graham, uh-huh. why do you need to, why, why do you need to focus a camera?
0: Uh, well, do you? I mean, that's the question. I think that focusing is an aesthetic choice and, um, <laughs> it is, it is. Okay. So sure. let's talk about one of my absolute favorite, uh, guys on Flickr, um, Chetback. Um, and he's French, I assume, cause it looks like everything in there is French and, when he comments on my work, it's in French. So I think he's French. Could be Belgian. I don't know. Uh, could be Swiss. Um, could be Canadian. You're absolutely right. But I think he's, he's in Europe. But um, the deal is a lot of his work is done in uh, either early morning, late evening. Um, it's at angles of light or just after dusk. And his stuff is almost always out of focus, but it is almost always compelling. And I don't mm-hmm. know whether it's he doesn't bother to focus or whether he's really intentionally leaving a blur. Um, I don't know.
1: Well, I'm sure it, there's only two. I think there's only two possibilities. Either it's intentional uh, or he can't focus his eyes, right? Which is the other possibility. And I remember right. Graham on this on this Sunny Sixteen podcast did a whole series of photographs, right? The myopic me without, mean, without his glasses on, which is you know, which if you are far or nearsighted, that's a you know, that's a way of seeing the world that's always available to you. But if you have good sharp sharp vision as I do, then you you can't you have to do it on purpose. You don't have an option.
0: And I have laser enhanced eyes. I had LASIK surgery, so. Um, I, I now focus, but I mean, I, that, and that's actually one of the things that I like about that series is because you are, he talked about when he was, was talking, you know, starting it up, he talked about the idea that you can, if you are not wearing your glasses and you need glasses, you can walk up on somebody and not know who they are and oh, then, sure. and, and probably offend the other person for not saying hi. Right. Um, and it, and it can be really isolating. It can be, and you know, it's, it, it's literally, it's not literally a fog, but it's a literally, uh, uh, an area in which you cannot see properly. So, um, so well, anyway. it's, it's,
1: yeah, it's the most, it, uh, it's the most dominant sensory input in our brain by a big margin for most people. And if you can just turn it off or like turned down that's, you know, make it really quiet so you can barely make it out. (laughs) That's a, that's a really different experience. And I think, uh, I think it's interesting that some people really see the world that way and some people don't. And we tend to sort of forget that.
0: Right. And there, and there are people, uh, I had a a cousin, um, he was of my, uh, in my mother's generation, but he was like way at the front of a, um, and he was actually an in-law, but he uh when i was in my teens he would always bring his camera to our family reunions and we had one every year and um and he had a bronica um and he would shoot portraits of everybody and um and he would bring his albums and he would show you know all of his pictures and uh he quit bringing the bronica um right about the time autofocus came in because he could no longer focus The Bronica. So, um, I mean, it is something that we as, um, photographers really have to think through. Now, um, one of the reasons why I always talk about range finders is because I find them so simple to focus that if I remember to focus, I, you know, it's never out of focus, right? I always, I always hit my focus. Um, and I, Am not that way with SLRs at all, and you know actually, okay. Let me. I'm gonna. I'll step back a bit on that. I was never that way with SLRs, um. Though now that I have my eyes fixed, maybe I would be that way again. But I've, 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 I don't have the affinity for SLRs like I do for uh, range finders.
1: Yeah, well, that makes you an odd in this time because i i used nothing but one slr for 25 years yeah ma- manually focusing the, you know it just it was my camera and i just never got a fancier one and that was it and right so i'm so used to that that to me it seems the most precise but i still don't always prefer it yeah. which is interesting so that's the one that's natural to me but i often would rather be using a rangefinder be- mm-hmm. for other reasons even
0: though it's not as uh Familiar. So so to get back to the question, I mean, you, 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 focus is an aesthetic choice and there are many people, you know, I say that the point of focus is what grabs probably 95, well, me, maybe even more, but 95% of the viewers' attention when they first see a photograph. But there's certainly a group of people out there who are going to look at the blurry area first. Because, you know, they're they're the bokeh addicts, right? Um, And they're all about, oh, let's see how bubbly that is. Let's see how soft that is. Are there lines? Now
1: I have an an assignment for you now. What's that? Let's make some photographs where instead of focusing on the dominant subject of the Ah. picture, focus on a completely different area and try and make the dominant subject so compelling that it People are forced to look at the out-of-focus place first.
0: That's the difficulty. <laughs> That's the difficulty. In other words, I mean, make like, like a lots... really
1: bad snapshot on
0: purpose. Like, yeah, what... there are <laughs> there are lots of examples of um, of images where the foreground is out of focus, and you have to look through a crowd to find one person in focus. Right. Um, those are always and, fo- but we, kind of annoying. Those photo, <laughs> photographs, <laughs> <laughs> and that's the reason. Well, okay. So that's an aesthetic challenge. I think that mm. we should uh, should I try that. So, work. so if if focus is an aesthetic choice, what exactly is it?
1: Yeah. So, what is we focusing? Have, we have we have uh, a lot of we've thought of. There's a lot of things to. Um, say about that and we'll talk a little bit about how light moves but i think i'd like to start by saying what it is is it's it's getting all the details of an image arranged with enough clarity that you can quickly take in all that detail and easily um and so so that's that's kind of what it is as a concept it's like getting everything all the information you can from what you're looking at Uh, and what is involved with a camera, since we're talking about light, is the light is gathered and intensified and projected back onto the film. Light travels in a straight line ordinarily unless it goes from one material of of one density into another material of another density, and when that happens it changes direction a certain amount based on the difference in density. And that's a, if you have a pure material, it's a very predictable uh, phenomenon. The light's just going to bend. And what a lens does, You, when you look at a typical like magnifying glass type lens, you'll notice that it's curved. And it's so what essentially is it's thickest in the center and thinnest at the edges. And that has to do with, uh, that's a lens which is designed to focus light. It's designed to take, the light that hits the outermost part it's going through less glass and so its direction is changed at a different amount than the light that's going to where the glass is thicker and the lens is perfectly shaped then all those different angles the light is going to depart from the lens at will all focus to one single point which is we think of as the the um, focal point or in a lens it's called the nodal point. so it's where all the light is brought down to an infinitely tiny spot and it crosses all the light crosses and heads out the other end of the lens upside down and backwards because of that crossing. What can you add to that?
0: Well part of the part of the part of focusing um, that is really amazing to me is is okay if you are taking a picture of a person and you have head and shoulders okay um, the pupil of the eye is a pretty small dot within that frame that dot hits the glass and it is generally that first element will disperse it at an angle so that that circle, will now become a cone as it goes out. And it will continue to disperse until it gets to the other side of the glass when it hits an angle and it gets dispersed in a, in, um, uh, a way that is different at one edge than it is at the other edge because it will hit that glass. Um, it'll hit the thin edge first okay so assuming a curved second side it'll hit that thin edge first and it will be bent um and whether it's bent outward or bent inward depends on the angle of the glass so then right. it hits the next element and you know there there can be if there're 15 and remember it bends when it goes into the glass and it bends when it goes out of the glass and it's not the thickness of the glass that is of importance. I mean, it doesn't it's slow it down going through. Right. It's, it's the, the angle, angle right. and how long it takes to get to that. So, right. so, um, it, it, in if you have a 15 element lens, say a 15 elements and nine. I know mirrors, it's you'll it's it's, it's
1: sort of amazing that anything's ever in focus when you think about it.
0: Right. Well, <laughs> the the thing is, it's going to be if it's 15 elements. That means it's got. 30 bends that it takes so it 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 turns into a cone but when that element is in focus that eyeball that pupil is in focus it comes back that cone starts shrinking down and it comes back to a point on the film plane or the sensor whatever you're recording on so you get a, you get a dot that becomes a cone that becomes a dot again. And, um, you know, and it, it, uh, it depends on the the number of elements and all those different things. Um, but that to me is absolutely fascinating because that means, and this is the, 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 one of the things I absolutely love about light, when it's in its particle mode, those little bits of light are going right through each other.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and and, and they're that's not the interacting. and that's the way and and <laughs> that's the and that's the way in which thinking about light as a particle is nonsense. And right. It's it's clearly something much more interesting than that. One of the things one of the things that so that you brought up that the angle the light hits the glass at is what's significant and also the time. Uh and what what is so when you think about something that's gonna change direction fifteen times at different rates all over the surface of all those 15 elements in a lens. It's just amazing that it can be made precise enough to work. But here's what's just occurring to me. So when we're when defining focus with a, with a pinhole, a pinhole does the same thing as a lens in a sense because every uh, piece of light that bounces off something and then hits that pinhole goes straight through it pretty much and comes out on the other side and... What, when you, when you hold up a piece of film, like, I don't know, a foot away from that pinhole, it's going to catch all the light coming f- through that hole, uh, and stop it making an image that's much smaller than full size. So you can think of it as a camera as the opposite of an enlarger. It's a shrinker, right? Right. So it's taking in a full size image and it's putting it through a pinhole or a lens and so that everything has to go through a single point and when that all comes out the other side of that point upside down and backwards you're catching it uh in the cone of light at a short distance so it's, it makes a small image now what with the pinhole everything's always in focus because it's just light traveling in a straight line that's all it really is right it goes through the through the hole and it it's basically encompassing all the light that hits it on one side of the wall is you know coming out the other side very simple But with with lenses, the idea is that all that zigzagging it's doing going through the elements, when it exits the rear, the last element in the lens, it's basically still uh, sort of out of sync is the way you could think of it. And it won't be in sync until you get a certain distance back from the lens, So unlike a pinhole camera, which you can just move the film back and forth to make a different size image, and it's all going to be in focus more or less, the, um, the other style a lens has a much more limited area where all the light will happen to be arranged so that you get a clear detailed image. And that's what the zone of focus is. And that of course is affected by the size of aperture as, as we mentioned in some other episode So that zone that's going to be sharp inside the camera gets a little deeper with a small aperture and and gets a little shallower with a large aperture.
0: And, and part of, part of the thing that we don't, or it was difficult for me to really conceptualize when I was really looking into, you know, what, what does a lens do, right? And how does it work is that Everything that is in front of the lens is in focus at the back of the lens, but it is in focus at the back of the lens at a different point, at a different yes. distance from, right. from the nodal point, from, from the flange distance, from every, everything, you know? Right. So and if, I mean, and if,
1: logically they have to design it that way or, you, you know, cause it has to be in the
0: camera where the film is. <laughs>
1: but it's it, it but it's a fascinating because it's a limitation that but we have come to think of it almost as a feature you know um
0: absolutely we, you know <laughs> i would say i would say focus is a feature focus is one of the most important characteristics of a camera or a lens or a camera lens system you know if you talk about you know a point and shoot that where or you know any camera that does not allow for the changing of a lens it is one of the most important features, and one of the things that you'll see in reviews when, okay, Rokinon comes out with a new 35 millimeter f1.0 lens for mirrorless cameras. One of the things that everybody is going to talk about is how close can it focus? It focuses down to one meter. It focuses down to one foot. You know, that is an important feature for a lot of people because the the more it will focus, the closer it will focus, increases the functionality of that lens. If right. you you've could got a, focus. You've got
1: a bigger world, universe to work with. Yeah.
0: Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And think of how many times you've taken a picture, you've been there with a, with a camera, you've framed your picture. It's perfect, but you're too close and you've got to step back and that frame changes. So yeah it's it's a feature it's a it's a flaw <laughs> it is um, uh it you know it's the core uh one of the core elements of of any uh, lens and camera system so um, so okay so we talked about the focusing method of you know of changing the distance between um, the Focal point, and or I, I should say that again, just moving the distance be, uh, between the film plane or the or the sensor and the object or or the lens. So, if we move the lens, different objects in front of it or different distances in front of the lens will now be eligible for sharp focus. And so, if we move that, if we change that arrangement. Of what is, you know, which one of those cones is back to a sharp point at the back of the, uh, at the film plane. Um, so, I mean, that's one of the traditional me- methods we use for focusing, but there are some other ones. Isn't that right?
1: Well, the ones that we, you and I have thought of so far uh, start with uh, the most basic, which is the camera and lens is fixed and doesn't do any focusing at all you just work with whatever that lens and aperture provide you for a depth of field and you design it ideally so that it goes from infinity to as close as possible Um, and you can figure this out and reverse engineer it when you make your own camera because usually a lens will have a focus scale or you can look it up on a table and you can say all right i think i can get away with shooting this This particular camera at f16, you know, when it's dark, I'll just get fast film and it'll be all right. And then you look at the, at the depth of field on the or scale on the lens and it it says, Oh, look, if I put infinity on f16, it'll be in focus all the way to 10 feet or six feet. That's great. You know, that's a pretty big area that I can just know everything will be in focus. If something tries to be six feet away, I'll just back up a little and take the picture. And, uh, it's actually a really fun way to work there's a lot of advantages to it. So that's the most simple, just working with the hyperfocal.
0: So I, a perfect example of that is I have a Canon FTQL. It's an old, uh, uh, mid, uh, probably mid-60s Canon. And it has a, a 50 millimeter 1.4 FL Canon lens. And if I put infinity at 16, or excuse me, at, yeah, at F16, which is the, smallest aperture that this particular lens has. It says that I can focus down to about eight feet. Yeah, it looks like range. it's about eight feet. So eight right. feet to infinity at F 16. So if this were instead at F 11, I could uh, go from infinity to about 10 feet. So um, that would be the range. That would be the hyperfocal range. Of, uh, of a of a lens in that situation, yeah. so so it. One of the things, of, uh, you know, I'm gonna say it again, and, I'm, and I probably am gonna beat this horse for a very long time. It is very <laughs> easy to set up a camera with that hyperfocal system, and it is very easy to shoot because it mm-hmm. takes that whole decision making about focus right out of your hands, and you just have to know. What your camera can do at different f stops, and, and then if you're you get good some, to go. If
1: you get some, uh, in the case of your lens, you can get some eight foot clown shoes, and that'll just keep you the right distance. That's
0: right. Yep. How did you know what I wear? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so right.
0: okay, so that's the that's the the basic easiest way is that we we're not going to focus at all. So what are and a lot
1: and a lot of cameras were made that way back sure. in the day. And they're actually, yeah, Yeah. some of them have the the added feature that they're not quite in focus anywhere too. So, you know, (laughs) and it makes it less of a a problem. Another way to do it.
0: We'll have to tell Grandma the Sunny 16 that, you know, he should just get one of those old fixed, (laughs) non-focused cameras. There you go. Right. So, okay. So another way is, um, this is the most common way, probably... Throughout all of focusing, the, the the most common way is to actually take that whole lens and just move it in closer and out further from the recording medium. So um, that could be, you could do it with uh, any camera with a bellows, you know, allows that movement. That's the one of the big purposes of the bellows and also the ability to collapse the whole thing but um, one of the abilities of the bellows was designed to allow the the front standard where the lens was to move forward or back in relation to the to the film plane
1: and and also quite a few instead move the 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 film back and forth instead of moving the lens which has some advantages yeah. it doesn't really matter you're just getting the lens and the film closer together
0: or right. further apart right right yeah. exactly now um, Similar to that, um, there are several different subgroups of this type of group where you're moving the lens forward and back. Um, One of them is the helical focusing lens, and that is usually it's a lens barrel that when you turn it, it forces the lens to move further out or closer back to the film. Right, and, so the whole
1: lens is riding inside a, a little carriage that's moved by a screw thread.
0: Right, exactly. So, um, we, you know, we have, um, that system where it's moving back and forth. We also have the concept of, uh, I think what, uh, what you referred to it was as the old, uh, pirate telescope method.
1: Oh, yeah, right, right. right. Where
0: it moves, where it's just, you know, a tube or a box that is sitting inside a cylinder or a, another box that is almost exactly identically the same size. So that there's some friction usually involved. So yeah, maybe that, well, strips,
1: strips of felt sometimes or, or something like that. Sure. Yeah.
0: Something to retard it. So if you let go, it's not going to just, you know, uh yeah. run away. So it,
1: so it's an adjustable sliding tube uh, that's also a light a light trap, and they're actually pretty easy to build, and I think they're underused. It's really robust compared to bellows. You can drop it, you know.
0: Sure, absolutely. Depending on the materials, I mean, if you made it out of like I was talking about that um, paperboard or cardboard box, if you made it out of that, it, you're going to drop it and nothing's going to break, right? Uh, and actually
1: a lot of TLRs are basically that designed that way. Look at a Roloflex or any of those. It's it's just a box in a box that slide in and out and the focal range is quite short so you don't even notice it when you look at it. But there's no bellows. It's just uh it's just a box sliding inside another box.
0: A lot of early um cameras and a lot of still like field cameras, uh, field view cameras, they used a rack and pinion system. So you would essentially have two rails that are not moving in, that are fixed to the body of the camera and
1: And they, and they have teeth on them.
0: They have teeth on them. Right. And you, you turn a, uh, essentially a knob that has, um, you know, uh, another end of it with that has corresponding teeth and and it moves that front standard usually the front standard in and out to a very precise um level Um, and it
1: it also adds the feature that we call damping so that though there's enough friction in the system so that it makes it easier for you to make very small precise movements and then stop you know it's not going to just slide away from you the way a, a slippery loose connection would
0: and do you want to talk about internal focusing lenses?
1: Yeah. So uh, so that whole system we talked about was uh, basically involved moving the whole lens back and forth. And everything that's coming out of that lens is in focus a certain distance behind the lens. And so you're basically just moving the lens until that in-focus area comes up to the, the film. However, the, there's another way to do it. And and this was a problem that needed to be solved to make really compact cameras with interchangeable lenses and the solution was to design a lens so that inside the lens the elements are moved back and forth in relation to each other changing the distance from the lens that the in focus area will be so instead of moving the whole lens you're you're changing the lens's characteristics um, so that the part of the image that you want to be in focus will be at the film plane. So this this lens holds still, it's locked to the camera, and either the front of the lens goes in and out, usually on a helical, or sometimes internal elements slide back and forth and the lens keeps the same length. Um, and there are a uh, really common for uh, single lens reflex, anything where you had interchangeable lenses.
0: And they're also um now we're just talking about focus. We're not talking about changing the focal length of uh, of the lens that you would have on a zoom lens. But these, the internal focusing mechanisms are really common on zoom lenses because you're already moving those elements around quite a bit. So, um, yeah, so. Um, and then the last one um, is very much related to the first one. So we talked about that fixed focus system. Um, well, once again, if you just change the aperture, of that lens, then, um, you're changing what area, uh, of that lens is in apparent sharp focus. So, um, just moving that, that aperture dial, uh, will also not only change what is in focus, but it'll change that, the number of elements, the number of planes out in front of the lens that would be, uh, in focus
1: and it's it's actually kind of a fun way to work you can have a fixed focus camera with a wide range of apertures and just it's still going to give you all these different kinds of image Well you just have to sort of have a little um i guess each aperture should have a number like where is this going to be focused next to it so that you know
0: So we've got all those different types of uh focusing methods. How can we be sure that it, no matter which one we use, how can we be sure that we end up with something in focus? How can we verify that focus?
1: Yeah, th- there's a whole bunch of methods. Um I'm gonna start with the most basic, which is uh there is no visual confirmation of focus but the lens was previously calibrated so that, um, you know, what, what will be in focus. And then you just measure the distance and you know, it's going to work. It's like just sort of knowledge. (laughs) And, and then there are also, you know, cameras where everything's in focus, like a pinhole camera where it's not an issue at all. Um, so those are ones where you just know what the camera can do and that's it. Um, and then the the next step up along those lines would be a camera that you can focus, but you still have no way to see for yourself that it's in focus. Again, though, you can use knowledge so you can previously figure out what's in focus and then make marks, um, indicating what distance the lens is in focus at. And with those, you can use all kinds of ways of measuring the distance. You can guess, you can use a measuring tape, um, you could use a separate rangefinder or even another camera to, to measure the distance. And then you just turn the scale on the lens until it's it's at that distance and you just trust your previous calibration and take the picture. And it's actually kind of a freeing way to work because you just figure it out and then once that problem's solved, all you have to think about is composing your shot. And so that can be kind of a, a nice way to work. I like viewfinder cameras that that force scale focusing
0: I, I i'm i'm with you and i and it can be either in numbers of feet uh or it can be the you know the classic one bloke two blocks, mountain uh mm-hmm. flower you know uh, uh galaxy whatever <laughs> <laughs> right
1: yeah those 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 are also a nice way to simplify it and some of the old uh and I'm sort of getting used to meters, which help because the numbers are smaller.
0: <laughs> sure. Right.
1: And, I don't know. For some reason that makes it seem, you know, you don't agonize over it as much. You
0: know, I, I'm I'm still baffled by people. I, I had this actual, this conversation in a classroom. I'm teaching a class over the summer that is high school students. And um, I said something about meters because there are at least three students in the class who are born outside the U S and, and I said, you know, so it's, um, you know, what are 35 feet or about six meters or something like that. Um, and one of the people said, I didn't, I, I don't know what meters are. And I said, do you know what yards are? And he said, sure. I know I watch football. And I said, there you go. You know, I mean, w- we've got that. So ingrained, we're just guessing, Right. If you well, need never... to know exactly, oh, yeah. you get a measuring device. We're just <laughs> guessing, you know. Okay. Right. Anyway, I'm sorry. Uh, <clears throat> off that high horse. Uh, there you go. So, and I want to point out that I'm drinking a 12 ounce beer right now. So, uh oh, right. <laughs> forget your <laughs> milliliters. I'm drinking. It's not 330 or whatever. Uh, okay. So, um, uh, the next thing, the next thing is probably the oldest um confirmation of focus and that's the ground glass confirmation and uh that's used you know in view cameras uh uh, almost exclusively i would say in view cameras and uh well Well, i mean that's the point of a view camera isn't it you're looking but what you're you're talking about
1: is what you're talking about is using ground glass directly directly but actually almost all cameras that let you see anything use ground glass good point good point um and and it's funny because what it boils down to is the image that's emerging from the back of the camera and it's supposed to have film right at the point where it's in focus you arrange to put a piece of glass that has been ground or basically a very rough and a very finely roughened surface has been etched into the face of the glass that's uh, that the, um, uh, is representing the film and it's sort of, sort of, uh, catch catches the image. Um, it makes it possible for you to see the image right at that point, uh, where it's in focus. And so as you focus the camera, you can literally see the image come, you know, come into clarity and it's, it's a fun looking at a ground glass directly, uh, in a view camera. If you've never done it, uh, is really, uh, it's beautiful. It's really fun. Uh, It's a little weird. It's upside down and backwards. Uh, You've got to focus on something that's really close to your face with a big black bag over your head, but it is amazingly beautiful when you get a magnifying lens and look look closely at it.
0: I fully agree. Um, Back in the 90s, this would have been probably 93, 94, 95. I had a 4x5 view camera that I could not afford to run, which made it very frustrating but one of my favorite things to do was get in underneath and really look at what I was taking a picture of. That mm-hmm. I miss that. I miss that tremendously. So, maybe. Well, you know,
1: you can stick a roll film holder on there. Right, right, <laughs> exactly. That's what I do. I use uh, view cameras quite a bit, but I, hard, I I, really am pretty much only using 120 film. Right. It's, it's just the way I'm set up right now, and it, it's fun.
0: One of the biggest problems with looking at the ground glass is, um, and especially when you're up close and especially when you need eye correction, right? That's a little bit difficult. So how do we, what are the aids that we can use to make sure that that focus is right on?
1: Well, one of the big problems with any ground glass is, is stray light makes it harder to see reflections. So Ideally, you want to have your head inside a black bag, you know, so that you're, uh, th- that the brightest thing in your universe is that screen and there's no no other light coming in to compete with it. And uh, that makes a really big difference. Uh, they actually make nice ones now that are white on the outside to reflect light and black on the inside and mm-hmm. Velcro in all the right places and so forth. Um, but But the old mm-hmm. press cameras just had a, a little metal hood that would fold out. And they work quite well, um, partly because those cameras had fairly fast lenses. So that's an issue with a view camera. A lot of view camera lenses are quite slow. Um, They're intended to be used, you know, stopped pretty far down. And making them big makes them heavy and expensive. So a lot of them have f8 would be the fastest or even sometimes slower. And the problem with that is that the image formed on the ground glass is really dim even wide open. So it's worth, uh, if you're going to use a ground glass to focus, it is worth looking at getting a slightly brighter lens. 5.6, for instance, is pretty good. Oh, or, but the old press cameras are in, you know, the F4 range and, and those things, um, you can see with just a little hood, you can see fine on a sunny day. So,
0: yeah. And one of the other things that you have to remember about what that F4 did is it, it shrunk the depth of field, so that it was more apparent when you were out of focus. So the once again the wider open the more wide open the aperture the shorter your depth of field. So even though you might shoot stop down opening your lens all the way helps keep helps with your focus because there's less of it that's possibly in focus.
1: Yeah, so we you can't judge like those old Graflex lenses by modern standards. The f you know, five F five or F four and a half lens, you were never mo- meant to shoot at those speeds. Like, of course, it's going to have blurry edges at, you know, F four or whatever, but you're not, that's just for focusing. It's just a focusing aid really. You know, it's, it's not a practical, although you can make really fun pictures with them wide open, but that's not really how they were used.
0: Um, you, you also talked something about focus stacking and I'm, I'm hazy on that. Can you yeah, clarify sure. that?
1: Okay, well, that's actually a digital process, and it's generally done using uh, sensor-based cameras. But it it doesn't have to be. What you're doing is you're taking. So when you're taking extreme close-ups, bellows, you know, macro bellows, focus you know, very close to um, to your subject, you'll have an extremely shallow depth of field. And this uh, computer process that's been developed, uh, software, to get over that problem. And what happens is. You take a whole series of pictures, moving the focus a little bit forward each time. Click, 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 click. And when you've got, you know, a whole bunch of pictures, each one focused a little bit closer than the one before, the computer looks at all this and reassembles them into an image that has as much depth of field as you managed, you know, to run, to run through. So, so you can take impossibly deep focus, ultra close up pictures. And it's an absolutely fantastic uh, process.
0: Okay, so is this like? Um, I remember uh, it's got to be a decade ago. Uh, Litro came out with their this light is, field camera. No, is it is, similar this thing? Is different. I don't actually
1: okay. know how those work. Yeah, I don't know how they work. I'm not really sure, but um,
0: I think it. I think it was something like that, well, where it, it took be, a rapid a, series of. Of yeah, images. so you have
1: a giant processor because the thing about Lytro was you were then able to later decide where right. you wanted the focus plane to be, and that would require an in, a lot of memory. I mean, it would have to remember an awful lot of information <laughs> to be able to spit back any scenario later on that you would want. Anyway, this is this is a little different because it's it's a piece of software that's just going to put everything into into focus. It's going to pick the sharp. Sharpest layer from each uh, photograph, and then or each image, and then merge them all together into a single one. And anyway, it's an electronic process. I don't know how relevant it is, but it's worth knowing that it's it's there. And you can certainly do things like that. Uh You, you know, it would be interesting to play with uh, film versions of that.
0: Yeah. See what you could do. I mean, there's and, no reason uh, why you couldn't. You know. Um, no, there isn't. Burn a whole yeah. roll just with micro focusing. Mm-hmm. um through there um
1: yeah, yeah sure and then you'd scan them all and yes see what the software made of it
0: yes yeah. and then you go oh oh <laughs> i shouldn't have framed it oh my camera wasn't level okay yeah right it's just, so, a, it's so just ins- a roll of film so instead of
1: doing that i i kind of liked to get things right in camera that's more my sure style. and and so we'll go back to looking at our different ground glass okay. types I'm, yeah i'm going to just finish off the view camera since oh, we yeah, were talking yeah. about it um View cameras sort of have the most advanced, um, let's say reconfigurable ground glass. So so some of the medium format cameras, you can, and even a few of the SLRs, you can switch the ground glass around, but it's usually just a few uh, variations. <clears throat> but you can find all sorts of stuff in view cameras and press cameras and so forth, like a Fresnel lens, which brightens up the whole screen. Uh, typically, When you look at ground glass, it'll be much brighter in the middle and dimmer at the edges. A Fresnel lens uh, spreads the light out evenly over the whole surface. Um, Then you'll often see the corners cut off, and that's actually uh, a way that you can peep in through the ground glass and see with your eye if any of the bellows are sagging into the field of Ah, view. I've always wondered that. If you peep through there and you can't see the entire lens then you're going to have, you know, some bellows shadow. And if you're making extreme movements, it's pretty easy to, for the bellows to sag into the picture. Um, so that's what those little things, and they also allow air to escape. So a lot of focusing mechanisms cause a, a a fixed volume to compress and you don't really want to have a bellows stirring up dust and, and, you know, messing things up when you, uh, focus. So there needs to be some place for air to get out. Um, and, and then it has to be light tight when you take the picture. So <clears throat> in this case, the film, uh, holder will block those, you know, you'll be replacing the ground glass with film holder. So there won't be a light leak.
0: So, um, are you ready to move on to my favorite system? I bet nobody can guess what my favorite system is. Uh, okay. Can
1: you? Uh, uh no system.
0: No system. No, come on. <laughs> Range finders, range finders. Oh, oh, we're going to go to there. Range, we go oh,
1: for focusing. Oh, for
0: focusing, absolutely. So you're so, going to
1: skip over reflex and all that.
0: Oh, oh, was there something else? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs>
1: I'll just say really briefly that there's a there's a piece of ground glass capturing the image in a re, any of the single lens reflex or twin lens reflex cameras. yeah there's always uh, a ground glass that's capturing the image so that you can tell when it's in focus.
0: And the reflex is just the presence of a mirror or a yeah. set of mirrors that that
1: or prisms mm, or whatever
0: yeah uh, and and the, the point is that they make that ground glass that you're looking at. The exact same distance from the lens as the film plane, and that's right. and that's what allows you to uh, to see that. And usually, in an SLR, that mirror flips up, flips, mm-hmm. or in the case of the Bronica, it flips down. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then with the TLR, it just stays in place because you're looking through that top of the couple lenses. So,
1: and I just I just want to throw out while we're uh-huh. in this. You're gonna
0: You're going to delay me from rangefinders, aren't you? No, no, a we'll bit be there more. soon. <laughs>
1: rangefinders, rangefinders are one of the best do it yourself systems. So we'll, that'll be fun when we get there. But okay. I just wanted to say that both single lens and twin lens reflex cameras are very good candidates for home builds because you don't need a fancy mirror that flips up instantly. You can have a manually raised mirror. Okay. So you can, you can build a camera so that you can see through the lens and then you can just Pull a lever till the mirror's up, and then take the picture. What's your hurry? Like you don't need all that fancy mechanical stuff. And the first single lens reflex cameras were built that way, and it's actually very practical.
0: There is also a uh, Canon um, uh, Parallax Paro. Uh, it's something with a P. They came out with. It, for some reason, it reminds me a pelican in my head, but somebody will know what, what this is and. But they did a series of cameras that had a translucent mirror, mm-hmm. yep. so the mirror did not move.
1: Yeah, there's others out there like that, and there's variations on that happening yeah. even even today. And then, of course, uh, the first single single-end reflex cameras that were mechanical uh, didn't raise the mirror until you cocked the shutter. So, oh, okay. You know, so if you can look the at process. the early Zeiss SLRs. Yeah, you would take a picture and it would all go black and then you'd cock shutter and you could see again. And it's kind of fun, actually. It's a different experience. So I think we can leave it behind. But I'd just also like to say that twin lens reflex is also a very, very simple concept. So easy to build yourself and a really fun type to use because they're very effective.
0: Right. The only, pr- only difficulty would be that math in getting that mirror in the right place and then getting the ground glass in the exact right place. Um, It's not
1: that difficult, though, if you think about it. If you're building it yourself, uh you you can put a piece of ground glass on the film plane, you know, where the film's going to go. And then you can uh, adjust the upper ground glass until they match perfectly. And then you're you're done. And then you just seal up the back of your camera and go to... go See what I'm... So, yeah, all of this can be done through... So, I'm a fabricator by trade, you know. I make things and... Mm -hmm. Almost always when there's something that seems impossibly precise, there's some way to, to sort of build it backwards so that <laughs> so that you can make a precise confirmation while you're still adjusting it.
0: So what you're saying is you are the king of the kludge. I wouldn't put it that <laughs> way. <laughs> and, as, and as you're an expert in branding, I, I think you can do better. <laughs> oh, from my point of view, it's a wonderful <laughs> brand. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're gonna talk about my clutch in a few minutes anyway, so <laughs> okay, so rangefinders. Rangefinders are the coolest system. Um and the the rangefinder is essentially um two um mirrors, two different viewports that when uh move back and forth in relation to each other, um can very precisely um measure distance and it has to do with uh two two windows two views excuse me that are set to converge
1: and so it's basically just trigonometry you're making right. a triangle and as the triangle angle changes when everything is sighted lined up then the distance must be changing it's the, the, the you know the straight leg of the of the right triangle is getting longer and longer that's just geometry, yeah, yeah, with a, absolutely. With, a gun, with a kind of a gun sight approach to yeah. to yeah, so
0: um they come in a bunch of different ways um you know uh the ones that I talk about all the time are usually coupled, which means that as you the are the the rangefinder is adjusted as you're adjusting the focus ring on the camera lens
1: right, so they're they're moving in tandem and right. they're calibrated so that they're accurate.
0: So, um there are a couple of different methods other than that. Um y- you have uh I believe your uh Iconta? No, what is it? Uh, oh, I yeah, I have You have it's,
1: a I, it's the it's the Zeiss Icon Mess Iconta, which means Okay. measuring Iconta.
0: Oh, okay. And
1: and it has an, it has a built-in rangefinder that is not coupled to the lens. So you adjust the rangefinder and then you read off the dial. You know it says ten feet or ten meters, and then you uh-huh. turn the knob on the lens to ten. So it's still scale focus, but you have a convenient uh, rangefinder that's built into the camera.
0: Right. Um, so you can you can do that. That's built in, uncoupled. But then you can also um, put one on the accessory shoe or the cold shoe, or it could be on the hot shoe. Yeah, so I have
1: a, uh, a I have a a, a rangefinder that is cold shoe mounted, so I can move uh-huh. it from one camera to another. Yeah, that's what you're talking about.
0: And and then finally, um, we have the laser uh, method. You can, um, in fact, I I have one that I use for calibrating um, lenses. If if I am going to create a scale focusing um, scale, I'll. Do the old ground glass like it's a view camera situation, and focus on something, and then use my laser s- scale to figure out okay we're ten feet away, and then I can mark that on the lens. You know, and I just use a
1: measuring tape.
0: <laughs> you can do you can do it old style if you want. I'm I'm a 21st century boy, so yeah, I guess I'm not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're still blacksmithing, right? So, That's true. Um, so uh, that's the, uh, you know, so, so that works for calibration. Um, I suppose you could carry around the laser um, uh, uh, rangefinder, but, you know,
1: you look, you look fishy uh, yeah. enough as it is when they see your camera and then you pull a laser. Out, right. You're, you're, you're in, you're I know kind of deep here, you know,
0: home, homeland security's called, you know, <laughs> right. here's, you're going to find yourself face down on the pavement. Right. right yeah. Exactly. You know, it's interesting how many times we do things that are, that we understand could be really seem as odd to other people and possibly threatening. You know, we walk around with these strange homemade camera boxes and we're looking through them and then we, you know, uh, so anyway, it's, uh, it's part of the, part of the hazard of it. So, so, okay. So
1: part of the brand branding you have to work on there.
0: And then we're going to talk about the devil. Are you ready to talk about the devil?
1: Uh, okay.
0: Autofocus. Autofocus is the devil. It says right on my, on my clicker page. It
1: didn't doesn't say that on mine.
0: It, it, no, it says it on my Flickr page. So
1: Yeah, so, I mean, ah, we don't have to talk about it all that much, but I guess we should run through it. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and I do want to point out that even with the most primitive camera in the world, if you have an autofocus camera, you can use that as a rangefinder, you know. Absolutely. Or, or any camera that gives you a readout off the lens. You just focus the, you know, camera A and then adjust your primitive camera to match it, and then you're, Bob's your uncle.
0: Right, right. Oh wait, no. Bob's my camera.
1: Oh, that's
0: right. <laughs> okay. So um, one of the things I'm going to say about autofocus, autofocus has gotten tons better in the modern age when you have uh, the confirmation LEDs. Um, uh, you know, if you if you are you mean the gl- to focus...
1: the glowing green square
0: or or it, okay uh, on the Canon. Um, t1i that i have that's my digital camera um it will flash a red led when an area is in focus so it will if right All right. Know, or so,
1: mirror, mirrorless cameras have uh let's say even more sophisticated sure methods right. sure
0: um and that is really good but it does not stop people from using those cameras and having haven't have them having them yeah, I'll figure out what I was trying to say there in a second. But when people use them often, you'll see that they are focused against the back wall of the room. Yeah. And and right. that just drives well, yeah. and I see that a lot on video. And that just mm-hmm. drives me batty because autofocus is the devil.
1: Well, autofocus is also designed for a certain type of photograph. And if you want to do more with it, you need uh, to get more control over it. And I have to say, I use a couple of Fuji digital cameras, old ones, but they were the first thing I ever encountered that let me choose a focus point anywhere at all on the image, which is different than a typical DSLR. So if I want to focus on that far right corner, I can put the focus point there and only focus on that. And and the the newer versions now have some insane number of choices, and they've added a little joystick. So you can can fine-tune focus in a really, really precise way and a very intentional way. So it really makes autofocus more intentional and more manual again. And and it's, it's actually, uh, quite good, but I still like regular old fashioned manual focus where you're actually changing the optics and watching the result. I just like it. I just enjoy that more.
0: So, um, our next ones are, um, much more for the digital age. Uh, they're the electronic viewfinders. So um, the EVF, what does EVF stand for, Nick? Well,
1: that says electronic viewfinder. There we uh, go. But really, it's not significant uh, because the LCD on the back of the camera is just another screen. An EVF is just a screen. The difference is that with an EVF, you're sticking your eye up to it. So it feels like you're looking in into a regular single lens reflex cameras eyepiece and you are looking through the lens. So it's very similar because what you're seeing is a direct readout of the sensor. And then there's also, um, uh, looking at the back of the camera, which is what DSLRs and and point and shoots allow. And that, you know, it's, it's just a tiny screen that it's often hard to focus on. I can't focus on them at all without reading glasses. Very awkward. I, I can't really use those.
0: When I had uh, my Canon T3i that had the um, infrared and uh, UV cutoff filter removed and replaced with just clear glass so that I could shoot infrared and I could shoot ultraviolet um, or or I could just shoot visible spectrum or full spectrum as, as I like to refer to it when I shot at all um the distance of uh or excuse me the light wavelength in infrared is different from that of visible so if i relied on the autofocus system it would confirm a focus that was not actually in focus because of uh of the the wavelength uh of the light sure. so I had to use live view with that. And mm-hmm. at, you know, so I would always if I went out shooting I took my reading glasses. Um uh because right. I was doing everything with that uh live view screen.
1: Right. And and the and I'll tell you that EVF a good EVF is so much nicer than staring at that little live view screen. Right. No, so so mirrorless cameras are great for things like uh infrared. But you know, I was just reading the manual of this old Minolta that I just worked on and it has an offset marked on the focus scale for shooting infrared film. So yes. what you, so you, you know, you, you focus and then you move that by, the, you know, just over that amount to that offset mark and, and, uh, and it will work with infrared film. And that's kind of cool. So that's a, a thing to good thing to know that if you're photographing in a different light range, you need to adjust your focus scale. Right. And a shoot, shoot infrared or anything.
0: Right. Like and I'm looking at, um, a Minolta MD 50 millimeter, uh, 1.7 F 1.7. Um, and it has, yeah, it's a little dot right next to the four mm-hmm. on the focus. There it still, is. So, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so uh, that,
1: that also reminded me of one other thing that I wanted to, that's sort of an offshoot of what you're talking about. Um, electronic viewfinders have a bunch of uses and I often carry both a digital camera that allows me that kind of, you know, EVF and a film camera. And I'm often carrying both and shooting both. And it occurred to me at some point that I should make a camera that is that can do both. And the obvious structure would be uh, in uh in the form of a twin lens reflex camera. And then I'm not about to build some elaborate mirrorless camera. So what you would do is you would find a full frame mirrorless camera and you would build a base for it that held a a film transport system and a lens mounted in such a way that it would move in and out exactly the same and be exactly the same <laughs> lens as the one you put in front of the range of the uh the mirrorless camera above. So you'd have exactly a twin lens reflex system.
0: For nine thousand dollars?
1: <laughs> well, no, 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 because you could get a cheap. There's cheap stuff out there already. I mean, oh, I suppose yeah. that's right. You can for yeah, about five hundred bucks. Digital can... cameras that are five years old are peanuts. I
0: mean, yeah. Yeah. You, know. <laughs> you yeah you can get in so uh, <laughs> Canon EOS five, which is a full frame for about four five hundred bucks. So yeah, yeah, so
1: give it another couple years and we'll build this thing. Yeah. 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 Anyway, it it would be fun. It's another uh, DIY project on my long list. Anyway, now we can move on and get rid of that topic.
0: <laughs>
1: I mean, so what? So what's significant about that uh, fact that you don't need to make an adjustment to focus infrared on an EVF? And the, the significance is that with the, uh, the type of uh, focus systems that are in operation with a uh, mirrorless camera or when you're in live view on a DSLR... They're a direct read of the sensor and the, there are, there are these, uh, bits of software that can tell exactly when that sensor is in getting a focused image projected on it. And that is different than looking at some ground glass because the ground glass is only telling you what the visible spectrum, uh, looks like. It can't tell you what infrared looks like because you can't see the infrared. But the, the sensor is just measuring what's going on with waves no matter what their wavelength is. It doesn't care. It's not a human. <laughs> it's a little robot. And <laughs> so, you know, it can tell what, what's in focus no matter what the wavelength is. And that's that's really different. And it, it makes them much more precise than any camera that uses a parallel system for focusing. And most DSLRs have a separate system that's essentially an automatic electronic range finder that's measuring distance and then transferring that information to the lens. And that's a place where if they're not calibrated right, you won't get an in-focus image. Whereas with uh, electronic cameras that are taking information directly from the sensor, there's nothing that needs to be calibrated. It just is either in focus or isn't and the little brain in their nose. So there's much less that can go wrong.
0: Another camera this week. I took that um six by seven graphlock back um and I built a camera around it. Um so I had a I had a starting point. I had that back as a starting point, but I also had a lens. Uh, I had a 75mm f4.5 Rodenstock Isaron. I think that's how you spell it. Y-S-A-R-O-N. Isaron. Yeah, I have, I have a Y-Sar-X. I have an sar Y-Sar-X from a different Polaroid. Yeah. And, and this is in a Polaroid Prontor shutter. And I didn't know what camera this came from. And on our forums, when I was talking about this build, um, Jonas, um, gave me a little bit of crap about the, the, um, it being from a copy camera and i thought no polaroid didn't make copy cameras and sure enough they did i i i think he i think he said a oh, an oscilloscope, oscilloscope camera, camera. That's camera right. which is a much yeah. more
1: limited that's much more limited copy camera lenses can be pretty good because they have to have a nice flat field of focus um they usually have to be higher quality but the opposite is true of an oscilloscope lens i have one of those And those things, uh, they're basically designed to, to just get a crude copy from a really blurry old analog oscilloscope readout. And yeah, well, they're, they're good at uh,
0: starting fires, um, when you run out of matches. And that's about (laughs) it. Well, okay. So what this is, and I did a little bit more research in it, this, uh, into it. This is essentially a, uh, an enlarger lens. Um, that is, mm-hmm. uh, stuck on a Prontor shutter and, and used for this. And it has the ability to do some, uh, some pretty good macro work because it, you know, as a copy, copy, yeah, cam, it'd be a good up uh, Um, right so, mm-hmm. so anyway, so I had that and it has some advantages, uh, or it has some features. This, um, the shutter has two places. It has no place to fire the lens or cock the lens anywhere visible. So it has a, um, uh, a cable release. So the only way to was fire with, it is a with a cable releases. release is it, that Yeah. Fire? That's, that's the idea. Okay. And it, but it has two right. of them. Uh, because one of the first things I noticed is it doesn't have bulb. There's no bulb on, on this shutter. The shutter itself doesn't have. Wow. Yeah. Cable it will releases, but what that's, it is is weird. one of them will hold the lens open. So one of them is effectively a bulb. Um, and Okay, and, and the, the other, other one fires, fires the shutter. The so, shutter.
1: And, you're, and you told me it was a self-cocking yes. shutter, which basically just means that when you push the plunger, it fires the shutter. You don't have right. to previously right?
0: Cock and the, it.
1: right. So it's like the difference between an automatic and a and a revolver. Right,
0: yeah, absolutely. Like At, well, or semi-automatic. <laughs> right. Semi uh, and a fully automatic you got to remember I live in gun country. Um a fully automatic um is you hold down the trigger and it continues to shoot whereas a semi-automatic you have right. to hold down right. the and that was each time. Right.
1: And those those were invented to sell a lot of right. film or right.
0: bullets. Right, exactly. So um my first thought on that is I have a love, I have a, a, an incredible love of multi, multi, multiple exposure when it is done properly and well and thought out. Um, and uh, so I thought I, as soon as I got that lens and I realized it was a self-cocking lens, and this was about a year ago that I bought it, um, I was going to make a multi-exposure camera um, with that lens. So, um, I had the back, um, and I had, uh, the lens. All I needed was a body to separate them and to hold the light away. So, um, you know, I'd successfully done the 3D printed body to go on this back, um, that I use for a pinhole camera. And I, you know, took that on my last little trip and I've, um, Continued to shoot it when I got back, and I and I really like it, and uh, I'm going to send you one as soon as I can get that 3D printer going.
1: So that's just that's so you've got a uh, pinhole with a graph right connector on the right, back, basically. Yeah, that sounds and, really nice. And
0: um, the problem is that my, the 3D printer that I have use of is currently under the weather, um, and I think I might have fixed its extruder. Uh, but we'll find out tomorrow when I go to work and whether or not I fixed the extruder. But, um, I did take it home cause I didn't have the tools at, at school. So, uh, I'll find out tomorrow. Uh, but in the meantime, I had a bunch of wood, um, in the shed. So, um, I figured I would just build a box. I can do that. I have wood, wood tools. So I would just build a box so I had to figure out a couple of things. And this is, you know, this is our classic build. The first thing that I had to figure out was what was the flange focal distance on that lens. So um, I have, uh, you know, I don't need any sort of fancy device. I have a paper towel tube. And what I do is I know a 75 millimeter lens is not going to focus past... Ten centimeters, right? It's not going to be a hundred millimeters or more. So I started there and I started cutting down that paper tube, just millimeter by millimeter, until I was <laughs> right where I wanted to. We gotta get you. Gotta get you. A yeah, power right. Power exactly. Scale, you could do that, but this took with, and re- with scratch a little. It, it took me about it, four you know, minutes. So I don't think you know we can get a fancy machine and you know all those types of things. It took me four <laughs> minutes with a paper towel tube that's all i needed so i in fact actually um the other part is that it was a very hot day and i was out there trying to have as relaxing of a time as i possibly could so i um i didn't want to i wanted to measure as little as i had to and I, you know, I ended up doing some measuring and, you know, and marking of the wood and stuff like that. But I wanted to do as little measuring as I, as I could. So I never I understand. did.
1: So above a certain temperature, you want to involve the human brain as little as possible
0: right. in the process. Right. So yeah. it, you know, so here's, you know, I could transfer the length of that paper tube to a ruler and then write down what it was and then m- measure it wrong. Or I could just use that tube itself as the measuring device which is what i ended up doing Mm -hmm. so um you know i so i started building the box i had to first build that coupling um uh and for those of you don't know what a graph lock looks like is it's essentially uh i'm trying to think what would be a good analogy it is um it has a mounting, a hard piece of plastic that is 78 millimeters wide. See, I did measure that. Um, it's 78 millimeters wide, and it's about two and a half millimeters thick. And it overhangs the rest of the machine, the rest of the back. So the idea is that you slide it into a slot that is 78 millimeters wide, and it is offset from... And it's, it's got a gap of two and a half millimeters and it is offset from the rest of the machine by about three millimeters. And I probably not described that right, but you're, I'm basically creating a slot for that thing to slide into. So that
1: thing, the thing you're referring to is the back. Yeah. any any graph lock film back any can graph slide lock. into this slot right and the slot is basically configured to keep light out
0: right and right. It, you know by you know light cannot make a corner and if so yeah. if you put three corners in there you're not going to get light you know mm-hmm. as well, long yeah, as it's rev- roughly tight you know and as
1: long as it isn't super reflective materials right
0: right right so and i used a lot of black spray paint on this in the mm-hmm. uh, at first I tried routering out that area. Um, and the problem was I was using um, a relatively, uh, I was using a quarter inch, no, probably three eighths inch um, piece of wood that I think it was poplar. It oh, might've yeah. so been it's poplar. Just, it's just really like spongy. It's yeah. spongy, it's soft. And I routered it and then all of the remaining wood just fell off. You know, <laughs> what was supposed to stay there. So I figured this is not my solution. So so what I did was I have this um, three millimeter thick, which is one eighth inch for everybody. Um, uh, it's plywood and it's furniture grade, cabinet grade plywood that I got from uh, a friend, uh, actually a friend of my wife's who has a, um, a um, uh, cabinet company cabinet manufacturing company and i got i got a bunch of scraps essentially you know i just asked uh because one of the one of the difficulties of building wooden cameras is we usually start out with wood that's just you know too thick quarter inch stock is thicker than what we generally need for cameras Yeah,
1: plywood's great too because it's very stable dimensionally it doesn't absolutely it doesn't uh, tend to change shape and size as much when the when the weather changes so that's a big help for accuracy
0: so um so i cut some strips of that and used that as the overhang and i found out that that worked pretty well and i used wood glue elmer's wood glue and uh clamped that down um and uh you know and let that cure and then i as i was letting that cure i built the rest of the box um the the rest of the box. So I had these two sides made out of that poplar, you know, that thicker poplar stuff. And then the rest of it is all the one-eighth inch plywood. And uh so I made the tops and the tops and the bottom out of that plywood. Um And then the front of the camera, I had to figure a way to mount the lens. Now, the lens came with a lens board and it was wider than the body of the camera. Well... It was actually probably about equal to the body of the camera. Um, you could have just
1: glued, glued it on there. I
0: could have glued it on there, but eh, eh, it wasn't going to give me the aesthetic look that I wanted. And I mm-hmm. did not remember. I don't want to use my brain, so <laughs> I didn't. Um, so I didn't want to figure a way to clamp that down, and you know, do ah, that just right. seemed way too much. So I took it off the lens board and. I, uh, and I ended up, well, I did a test first. I drilled a hole to see if the threads of this, uh, of the lens would reach all the way through that quarter inch plywood. Um, and it almost would. However, it's a 38 millimeter hole that I cut and the threads are 38 millimeter. So it was a tight fit, and I could just screw that thing down, and I just screwed it into the wood. So this is not going to work forever, right? It's eventually it's nice though. It's a
1: good solution though.
0: But it, it was an elegant solution and It was light tight. Um, mm-hmm. So,
1: and I, and I want to just comment: if you ever want to add the, uh, the the screw on ring to the back, it wouldn't be that hard to make a very shallow cut at, at a larger diameter on oh, the yeah, inside. Yeah. Yeah. And just take off one or two plies just with a sharp knife. Just peel off one or two plies. Right. And then you could tighten up your little ring. So if it ever gets loose, you can do that.
0: Okay. Maybe um,
1: with a thin, a very thin washer or something to just yeah. like, stiffen it up.
0: I have hole saws. You know uh, you know what a hole saw is. It's a, yeah, it's a right. drill bit, essentially. Um, and the biggest one I have currently is 38 millimeters. I can't find any that are – well, I haven't – I haven't fully searched, but, uh, well, you
1: could also just cut around it with a knife. I mean, yes. if you had, you know, you yeah. wouldn't put a peanut butter jar lid on there or something. And, and actually, with a knife.
0: and actually I did end up when I, okay. So I, I build my box, cut the hole in it, uh, in the front. And then I glue everything together and let it sit for, I, you know, I only let it sit for maybe five or six hours. Uh, but, but that worked well. Um, uh, it, it cured the glue enough. And then I had a couple of places where I had to, with a with a, a mat knife, cut down and shave down some areas. So uh, in order for everything to smoothly work, and that's one of the great things about wood, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when you're working with wood, wood is forgiving. You know, you can sand things down and change their dimensions. You can do all that type of stuff.
1: Unless it gets too small.
0: Well, yes. Yes. And then <laughs> And then you start again. <laughs> no, or you just grow some more. Or it's you a
1: build it back up, I guess. Yeah.
0: Right, right. So, so that, um, that all actually came together quite well, quite effectively, uh, with very little in the way of error in my trial and error. So I was very happy with that. So the next day, I mean, it, I'm. Do you remember I told you early on that I have a rule? And one of the rules is when you buy a new camera, you only put one roll of film through that camera before you develop it and check to make sure it doesn't have light leaks and all that type of stuff. That's a rule made
1: made to be broken.
0: Well, but the thing is, and it's hard sometimes. You get a brand new camera and, oh my God, I've got a new camera and it may take me a week to develop, you know, that type of whole thing. So that was my creepy voice, right? Okay. <laughs> um, so, you know, you, you you get excited and you want to shoot, oh that that must have been perfect. It all sounded like it had the right speed. So, uh so I put this thing together, didn't paint anything. I taped it all up. I have that uh 3M uh opaque crepe paper, you know, it's like our crepe tape. It's uh like masking tape, black masking tape, but it's mm. specially um, uh, opaque. Um, so I I had that, uh, and I taped up all the seams, all the seams, and all the around where it joined, um, where the uh the back joined the body, um, like
1: just in case that glue transmits light or something.
0: Right, exactly. And um, so I uh I put it all together. I went out the next day and I shot some film, and then, luckily enough, the following day I was able to develop it. And it worked perfectly. It worked like a dream. So I have a six by seven camera with a you know a crappy and larger lens um, and uh, you know but and, I can, it,
1: and it's set to a hyperfocal right so Set to a hyperfocal. yes, absolutely. You, what's the what's the range like about where do things start to come into focus?
0: Okay, so um, F22 it goes down to F22 so that was what I set it for. Um, so the height, the, um, infinity focus at F 22 comes down to about, uh, at F 22 comes down to about eight feet, Mm -hmm. six feet, somewhere right in there. Um, and it goes, you know, all the way out to infinity. Um, and at F 16, it's at, I think 35 feet versus, um, 10 feet, 10, 11 feet, something like that. Um, 10
1: feet to 35. And w- and just yeah. out of curiosity, what's the widest it goes?
0: It Down to 4.5. So, and at
1: 4.5, what's it? Do you, oh, do you remember what it focuses on?
0: I'll point? have to make a measurement. I wasn't really too concerned about that. But well, I, it'd really know, I, I really should. It'll be interesting to know because now you have
1: a – yeah, that's your focus control. And, right. Uh, I mean, I could see both F22 and F16 being particularly useful – but it'd be kind of fun to know what wide open is so that you could, you know, as the sun's going down, you wanted to just put a subject just the right distance away and take a right. picture you'd know, know right. what it is.
0: So, um, so the, just so you guys know, the time scale was um, Monday, I built it. Tuesday, I shot it. Wednesday, I developed the film. Thursday, I was at work. Um, and Tuesday, I was at work. I shot on the way to work. Uh, but on... Uh, Friday I finished it and by finishing it I sanded everything down made everything smooth dusted it all um, you know did the final fine adjustments on the mount um, on the um, on the mount with the uh, what do you call it Um, uh, with the back Um, the coupling with the back that's what I should say and then I um, painted it yellow. So, it is a bright yellow box. It has some black tape around it where I'm still, um, you know, just, uh, just to make sure that it doesn't have light leaks because, you know, uh, <laughs> um. Well, I, I
1: really like the yellow box. I think that, yeah. I think it looks great. It's really fun. Corey, and. and, I was, and, all, and oh, yeah. go ahead. No, sorry. Right.
0: Oh, I was going to say Corey Cannon, um, asked me, uh, I put, I posted a, a temp or excuse me, a, uh, test shot. And he said, is that a light leak in the lower right hand corner? And I said, of course I don't build cameras without light leaks. So, uh, so yes, anyway, but you were saying, about I, I the think, yellow,
1: well, or? I think, yeah, no, I think, I think it's really, it looks great. And yeah. since you have this like light leak, maybe you should make it a, an, a feature that's adjustable. <laughs> so you should have an aperture on your light leak. That you, sure. <laughs> that, you can, that you can control it
0: what i should do is i should do it like the revelog you know the people who make the revelog film i should have little leds all throughout oh, the inside, inside of the, the body camera. so that i can just flash them you know oh, artificial
1: this, light leaks i don't know this I don't needs
0: know. a this <laughs> needs a red and a yellow <laughs> yeah exactly no.
1: So, oh, so instead yeah. of filters, you could just like have right, a bunch right bunch of blue light inside right. the camera. Right.
0: So so one of the things that I think that is particularly nice about this camera um is the size of the shutter that this lens is in. Um it's it's a disc ah I'm gonna guess I suppose I will tell you how big it is because I have a ruler and I have a brain that's working today. It is uh about Uh, two and three eighths inches wide, and for our European, for everybody else in the world, just over seven centimeters. Um, and the thing about it is, it's a big black disc, um, that is sitting here on the front of a a yellow box. That the proportions, I think, are really actually nice. I think it is. Kind of a pretty camera in an ugly sort of way, if that makes any sense to you.
1: I think Maybe. it's almost perfect, but it needs four tiny little yellow feet so that it oh, becomes yes. a little animal. You know, they could be very minimal, just like less than a thimble each one. But
0: okay, yeah, good like point. And, uh, and a belly button that we call a, um, a tripod mount. A tripod mount, right, exactly. Yeah.
1: So I guess that, that makes the tripod the mother.
0: Uh, yes, it would. I think it would. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, one of the things that's nice about this um, is it doesn't have a viewfinder yet. I bought a viewfinder on eBay yesterday. Um, So, um, it does not currently have a viewfinder. It's 75 millimeters on uh, 6x7. I would say that that's about a 42.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's like a perfect normal. Yeah. Perfect normal.
0: Yeah. And, um, So it, uh, so I'll, I'll get that viewfinder on on the top, but right now what it has is it has a flat bottom so I can put it anywhere. Uh, and it's not going to fall over. It's, you know, it's got a big enough, uh, bottom, you know. Okay. So here's one of the things is the back never touches the ground and it doesn't really go very far. It goes a little bit up above the body, but, um, so I can set it down and take a picture. Or the other thing is that I can hold it up and I can put the horizon line at the top of the box. So, sure. it, so I mean those those types of things really help with the framing. And so, I gotta
1: say that with a with a perfect normal lens, you actually don't need any lenses in your viewfinder. So you could make any kind of direct viewfinder, whether it's a you know, a tube that you look through or, right. or a sport right. finder with a wireframe. Any of those will work because it's the focal length of the lens is exactly similar to your your own eyes. Yeah. So, Good point. Yeah. Good point. So it so, actually would be, I think it'd be really nice with a little speed graphic type pop up rectangle on the front and a uh-huh. sighting, a little sighting oh, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: eye thing in the back. You know Cause I mean? it'd just be, you could fold it down and I don't know, it'd be cool.
0: Yeah 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 I'll I'll come up with that so so anyway it's good now the problem is that I shot a bunch of multiple exposures with this in that test um, that test shot and then I realized it, when I looked at them I was kind of eh, because I've really forgotten how to shoot multiple exposures for my eye now I want to point out I'm going to tell everybody you know we do an outline of this and when I put down the line. I have to remember how to shoot multiple exposures with it. Nick wrote in, just keep shooting without advancing the film. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, I, there are certain things. I love doing the rotational, which is you oh. focus on an object, you take a step to the right, you shoot again, you take right, a step right. to the right, shoot again. You Okay. So the rotational around, I like doing a bunch of those types of things and... Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's well, that not,
1: works though, right? I mean, you yeah. you have a separate film advance and shutter cocking, so it's right. Almost, it's like hard not to make multiple not exposures.
0: Not only that, but I did an experiment with a with a with a roll that I shot over the weekend, and what I did was I took a shot, and this thing, uh, the this back has film adv- it has a film advanced lever and it's one pull of the lever advances the film to the next frame it's a single stroke um advancement but it's ratcheted so what i did was i released the the catch shot a picture advanced it a little bit shot another picture advanced it a little bit and shot another picture advanced it a little bit and shot another picture we'll see how that comes out um uh, it's just another one of the possibilities that you can do with this, and the great thing about it is um, because I'm doing that with this back, I'm going to go directly to that next frame because it's got it's doing all the film advance uh, film handling for me. So, mm. so that that's uh, that's pretty good. So I'm going to call this success. Yeah, um, sounds good. So uh, I like the way
1: it looks too. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think and, funny, funny looking cameras are a big advantage.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. And this, for the branding purposes, is the, the 67 Woody, because it's made out of wood.
1: And I just have realized there's a whole sideline of here where, you know, people who are embarrassed by their expensive high tech digital camera could hire us to make homely looking covers for them. <gasps> to, <laughs> you could We've stick hit. your, stick your nikon whatever in a in a uh you know in a, in a bird box and,
0: nick uh, once again you've you found something <laughs> that i now have to cut out of the podcast otherwise somebody's going to steal our idea and make millions they make millions they may make millions of pesos but they'll make millions of something on that idea there you go so.
1: well and and i just had another idea that i'm going to blurt out just because i'll forget it otherwise which uh-huh. is you were talking about double exposures and you're, and you're walking around and yeah. that's a great idea. And it, it made me think of another version where you would take uh, one image and then you take another image and then you would advance the film and take exactly the same shot again Oh, and then go randomly somewhere else. And then again, advance the film, repeat that shot. So every double exposure would have the, would have one, the, the, one image from the previous and one from the next.
0: So it's kind of like a chain reaction. It's a, it's like
1: a chain re- chain yeah. reaction and every image would have either one from before or one from after. So each image would tie to the next one, you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. It's a, it I mean it, it'd be worth a shot.
0: Do you are you saying you have one of these lenses, don't you? You have a no, you have I the have, one you have the no, I have a bunch of lenses
1: that are floating around and I can stick on any, you know, any one of several bodies. So this kind of things easy easy to figure out. I really really like working with roll film backs for this reason. I mean, think about all the stuff we're talking about when you can switch the film backs means you can change it up all different kinds of ways. Um because, you know, you could have two identical film backs or two different ones or whatever and just make all kinds of combinations of things happen.
0: So I talked about the 67 Woody, about what I'm building this week. Did you have any any builds this week? Did you have any time to do any?
1: Well, I didn't build any new cameras, but I did have a bunch of fun uh, doing some camera repair work. Um, and I'll just sort of, well, I'm not going to talk about it now, but if you look at the Homemade uh, Camera website, um, or no, Flickr page, we have, uh, I put up some pictures of a Minolta XD5 that I just recently replaced all the light seals on. Uh, and it was real satisfying cause I found this camera super bargain for something I really wanted, which is a Minolta that's fun to shoot. I have a lot of lenses and, uh, you know, it just needed a little bit of, a little bit of work and it was, it was satisfying fixing it. So that was my DIY for the week. All right. So the books I wanted to talk about are all books about old cameras because that's a, a really good source of information, inspiration. Uh, cool design ideas, uh, great aesthetics, and also even just you know looking, discovering parts and pieces that might be useful. So there's a whole lot of these books out there. There's an infinite supply of them, and I tend to look for them in you know used bookstores. So I've found some of these. I don't know whether they're in print or not, but it doesn't matter anymore these days. You can get any book. And uh, the first one, it's particularly useful is called cameras from daguerreotype to instant pictures. And it's by Brian W. Coe, C-O-E. Uh, and that book is all filled with very detailed line drawings and it really is tracing the history of camera design. So it, it's, it's got a tremendous variety of uh, really out there contraptions and it covers all kinds of different specific areas separately. So it's, it's a great book just on all the ways you can concoct a camera. Oh, okay. really, really useful. Um, and then, uh, another similar book is out of the uh, George Eastman house, the Kodak museum in Rochester. And it's 500 cameras, 170 years.
0: I have that one. Uh, well, I don't personally have that one, but, uh, the school library has that one and I checked that out. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Todd Gustafson, 170 years of photographic innovations. Anyhow, um, Mine's a used copy that somebody named Delany gave to somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, it has just, it's just basically they went through their huge collection and put all the coolest stuff in here. It's really, uh-huh. really interesting. Beautiful yes. and fascinating old cameras that are actually extremely inspiring. So that's a useful book. And, and,
0: but y- y- you, when you're looking at that book, you need to stay far away from eBay. Oh, this
1: stuff is all so far out of my range that that doesn't bother me. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) These are are really rare things. But great, we have them in a book and we can imitate them if we want to. (laughs) And so the other book that I'm going to mention, there's an infinite number of similar ones to what I just, uh, the one I just mentioned. But this book, Collecting and Using Classic Cameras by Ivor Matanle with 320 illustrations, is Thames and Hudson published it. And it's... Uh It's a classic book. I think he's a British author. And it goes through... It really starts in the 1930s and goes up to the present. And it he's really talking about classic cameras from the point of view of someone who's going to buy them and use them. And the book came out before the end of the film era. So it was cameras that were already classics You know, when this was written, which was in, I don't know, the 90s or something like that, maybe the 80s. And... It covers a lot of cameras you and I really like to use. But because it's from the point of view of someone who's going to use them, it's not about their history so much. It's not so much about you know the design as about how usable the different ones are from a very practical point of view. And a lot of that information is directly useful if you're planning to uh, build your own cameras as well as collect and fix and use the old stuff. Very useful book.
0: You're, yeah, and once again, each time you talk about these books, I head off to uh, Amazon and I ordered one of them uh, from the last one, so. Uh, well,
1: those two and, were fantastic. Those are essential ones. I mean, a lot of these you don't really need, but those are actually the, the... Like nitty gritty information, and I thought you already had the other one, the pinhole
0: one. Um, I had a different pinhole one, so um, so I, I I did order one of those, and uh, it's 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 coming my way. So um, last episode, I stumbled across some uh, email uh, reading people's emails, and one of them I was looking for, and I couldn't find it. Was from Ralph Lundvall, um, and he was talking about uh, two episodes ago. Uh, When we were talking about shutters and apertures um, uh, together and what they do, and he, I I thought he had a really great, and I was, I was struggling, you know, okay, so one is for time, one's for volume, all this type of thing. And he talked about, uh, he had a great analogy. Uh, He said, I think of a pipe of light, the length of which is handled by the shutter, the diameter is handled by the variable uh, by the variable apertures, and that to me is really great because because light's shooting along at one hundred eighty six thousand miles a second, and <laughs> and you open that pipe. That's a okay, long pipe. That's a long <laughs> pipe. Yeah, it's well even even a fast shutter is going to give you a long pipe. But but that and it does you don't even have to think of it as moving that distance. But I thought that that was a really great way of looking at it, you know, if you, uh, if you think of it, um, maybe, you know, I'll, I'll extend the analogy or, or morph it a little bit. If you think about it as a milk can, okay. So different sized apertures versus different shutter speeds can give you the same volume, right? But they might have different characteristics. One of them having a, you know, bigger diameter and the other one having a, a longer length. That type of thing, and I think that that's a really good analogy. And as soon as he wrote that, or as soon as I read what he wrote, I thought, oh, "What a great way to to think of it!" So, so I thought that mm-hmm. that, that was pretty good.
1: Yeah, and it, it it helps you visualize why one one stop is such a big deal. Because if you imagine a, a one foot, you know, pipe of light that's two inches thick, right? And then you and then you jump the aperture up well the volume goes up really you know it's a it's a it's a logarithmic right uh, right logarithmic increase not just a, a small increase
0: right so um, do you have anybody uh, that you want to talk about uh, any any shout outs uh, in particular this week
1: oh no I didn't actually come up with any yeah uh, I, I I wasn't really I just just barely finished work and dashed in here to record this. So yeah, I I think,
0: I think I'm going, going to um, say again, check back. Um, It's not, and this is not something about. uh, Okay. So we talk a lot about making cameras and the mechanics and the science and all that type of stuff. Um, But really what we're trying to do is make pretty pictures. We're going to to make devices that make the pictures that we want. Right. So I'm going to say, I'm going to go back to Chetback uh, on Flickr. And uh, it's, you know, uh, once again, I think it's French. So I'm sure I'm butchering it. Like we did Jonas's name for a couple episodes. Um, uh, what's,
1: what's the word you're looking for?
0: Well, no, what I'm trying to say is um, uh, I, I, his work is compelling. Do you, okay, so when you... Put something up on Flickr, and or on Instagram or wherever, and you get a like. You know those are good. You know there's some people out there who's who are going to like everything that you do, uh, and then there are some people who are going to like some of the things. And you know, depending on what work they do and the vision that they have, if I can get Chet to. Like one of mine and comment on it. I've done something. You know what I mean? It's it's that I respect his work so much
1: that when he, but he comments could on be, he mine, could just be he could just be really nice. He
0: right? could be just well. No, I'm, what I'm saying is <laughs> ah, but what I'm but what I'm saying is he doesn't comment very often on my stuff. Maybe he's just lazy. I don't know. We've already determined he can't focus. So uh, so, <laughs> so anyway, I just really I I love love looking Let, at let's try
1: type. let's i'm trying to get you to say the name
0: oh well here uh, um i it, i can't i why don't you spell it oh uh, c-h-e-t-b-a-k i think is what it is oh uh, i have
1: no idea what language that is Who yeah knows? yeah
0: and um uh here i'll go to uh go to Flickr right now and um i think maybe it's b-a-k something check yeah here we go it is the picture makes him look like uh Dustin Hoffman. Not Dustin Hoffman. Um Uh I've done the wrong uh, um Oh my god. Um let, <laughs> uh, anyway have I y I've I've given the wrong name and I, now I can't think of who I'm trying to think of. It's C H E T B A K fifty nine. C H E T B A K. Well, that might not
1: even be a name. That could just be like, uh, you know, some right. part, piece pieces and parts of other words, or who knows.
0: Right. Yeah. So, um, so I'm going to say, take take a look at his stuff, um, and um, uh, and see if see what you think of it. And um, so, anyway, my my point is that when he comments on my stuff, uh, you know, it's. Uh, I take it with more more of a grain of salt than I would with somebody else's, if that makes any sense, or the opposite. I, I really like when he comments on my stuff.
1: Oh, these, yeah, these are great. These are really nice. So yes. the way you de- <laughs> the way you describe them, uh-huh. uh, I had a much more exaggerated idea. Okay. These are these are uh, just very precisely and subtly out of focus. Yeah, in a way that makes them feel much more intimate than the typical 100% sharp, but they're also not like super blurry. Like I follow some people that I actually admire quite a bit that you can barely make out what's in the image at all Yeah, because that that can be done well. But this is a, a very subtle uh, use of focus, and I'm sure yeah. it's intentional. I'm positive. Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. I I think I'm pretty sure it is too. Um, yeah. So, um the other person that I'm going to talk about is Moonchild one 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 one. So it's Moonchild, and then there are four ones, and this is also on Flickr. And um, I believe it, uh, man or woman, a Japanese uh, photographer, um, because they're talking, or a photographer in Japan. Maybe that's the way I should say it, uh, because the comments are like you know springtime in in Tokyo, that type of thing, and it is. It looks to me like the entire body of work is underexposed in the most compelling way ever. Um, each picture looks like it is taken at a time of the day when there is almost no light, and they're all uh, they're almost all focused on on plants or small objects. Um,
1: this is not on Flickr.
0: Oh, then I
1: there's a person on Flickr but there there are no images.
0: Okay.
1: So it must be Instagram.
0: No, it's on Flickr. Um I need to No, okay. Well, I'll uh, I'll take a look. I'll get a better um uh maybe okay.
1: Maybe you're a secret uh yeah. friend of this person, but when I look at their page, I see Yeah. Uh just a blank thing saying there aren't any pictures
0: okay well i'll look at who i faved and i will and maybe
1: that just means you have to follow them or something um yeah so i I haven't really i really don't know that much about how
0: yeah um
1: it could just be that you have to click it and then they decide if you're real or not
0: oh that could be because it it is m-o-o-n-c-h-i-l-d one 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 so it oh, may not oh,
1: be. A... no. There's I, the person I looked at had one, one, one less one. Okay. That's awkward. Okay. Man. This is, this is a different moon child. Here we go. Uh, people and nope. Okay. Moon child and four ones.
0: Four ones.
1: No, I'm not getting anything.
0: Okay. So I'll, I'll send you a link, uh, or I'll, I'll put a link maybe to the, um, uh, in, in, in the show notes. Um, but it is very s- select, um, focus or a very short depth of field. Um, very dim. Um, and it, there, every one of them is toned in the same way. Um, So that it it has a slight warm tone to it. Um, So uh, it's not quite... It's all black and white. It's all square. Um, Hmm. Oh, no, I do find one color picture. But uh, I'll send you the link. And then um, uh, I'll put it up in our... um, uh, In the show notes for this. Uh, So, okay. So... um, If you want to get a hold of us, Graham at uh, HomeMadeCamera.com, Nick at HomeMadeCamera.com, and Podcast at HomeMadeCamera.com. And uh, we, you know, those are all email. Um, Our Flickr group is the HomeMade Camera Podcast on Flickr. Um, I am Freezer of Photons on Flickr. And you, and that's all one word. And Nick, you are Nick Lyle at on Flickr, correct? Mm -hmm. And, and you are also on Instagram. You never say your Instagram. Should I tell people what it is or? Oh, sure. It doesn't
1: matter. It's A V Y N I C K.
0: Okay. And, um, it, (laughs) you just, yeah. Anyway, you just appeared there one day. Um, we are also part of the film podcast network. For, list, uh, for a listing of film and experimental photography podcasts, visit filmpodcastnetwork.com. If you have a podcast yourself, there's a form for you to fill out and give us your information about your show, and we will um, add you to the listing.
1: And I, also, as always, I want to send a thanks to Robbie Cribbs of Soundtrap Studios for composing and producing the music that we use with this podcast. <laughs>